Okay, Exodus chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Moses and Pharaoh are having their final face-to-face showdown. Moses was called into Pharaoh's presence so that Pharaoh could try to negotiate with Yahweh one more time. Even though he's been living in darkness for 72 hours, he still feels that he maybe has a little bit of weight to throw around. God to God, divine to divine, because Pharaoh believes that he is that, the embodiment of the god Amun-Re. And so Moses speaks to him. Pharaoh says, I don't like what you have to say. You're not going to take my offer. I'll tell you what. If you ever come back into my presence, if I ever see your face again, I'll kill you. It's over. It's done. And Moses says, as you say, you'll never see me again. Boom. We cut to chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord says to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he, Pharaoh, will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This is not going to be begrudging consent. This is going to be get out of my land is what God is telling Moses. Expect that. Expect this to be sudden. Expect it to be somewhat violent. Speak now. This is still God telling Moses what to do. Speak in the hearing of the people, the people being God's people, the nation of Israel stuck in the land of Goshen, a subset of Egypt at this point, enslaved by the Egyptians. This is who God has been telling Pharaoh to let go over and over and over again. He says, speak where they can hear you, that they, the people, may ask every man of his neighbor, it's implied there that the neighbor is Egyptian, every woman of her neighbor, the Egyptians, for silver and for gold, Jewelry. This is a theme that we see in the Bible where God sends his people to plunder their enemies and then he builds his kingdom out of that plunder. Jesus uses similar language in the New Testament to discuss the way that he breaks in to the human heart, the human soul, and takes back from Satan what Satan has had control over in order to build his kingdom out of us. So similar idea here. And then verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, which is our way of understanding when they asked for the gold and silver, they got it. God made sure that the people of Egypt followed through on that request. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Again, being Israel. In college, my senior year, I lived in a three-bedroom apartment with six other men. So you can just already visualize what that smelled like. Just to walk into the house, it was a mixture of Axe body spray and garbage that needed to be taken out, frankly, and clothes that should have been washed. One of those six roommates that I had, he didn't live in my room exactly. I lived downstairs, kind of under the stairs with another guy. He lived upstairs with two other roommates, and because he was in the three-person room, because there were seven of us splitting three rooms, so he had two roommates in his room, he was never in his room. He was always kind of in the living room. He would sleep on the couch. He would sleep on the big beanbag that we had. He would sleep on top of the record player. Sometimes he would just sleep on the floor. He would sleep right in front of the doorway. He was almost homeless, but he did pay rent. And one of his favorite things to do was to come to my room and say, hey, bro, you want to watch a movie? And I'd be like, I'm in college. Of course I want to watch a movie. At all times, I want to watch a movie. It's all I want to do. Let's just watch movies. So we'd go out to the living room. He'd have to move his pillow and his blanket and his dirty socks off the couch. And then he'd put a movie in, and we'd sit down. Maybe I'd get a snack from the fridge, and he'd immediately get on his phone, just not even paying attention to what's going on on the screen. And this was like the very beginning of Instagram when we all thought we could become famous. So he's like editing pictures and these apps that he has and saving them and then uploading them and commenting on stuff and always texting girls, but he never had a girlfriend. Maybe they came over to the house and saw what he was like and they were like, "Uh uh-uh, not doing this. I don't know. But we get to the action scene in this movie. I'm talking like maybe a full 90 minutes in and stuff would start happening on the screen. Somebody draws a gun or somebody's holding somebody hostage and he'd look up and he'd be like, hey, who is that? Is that the bad guy? Is she the bad guy? Why does she have a gun? What is she doing to him? And You probably never watched a movie with me, but I spend about half the time that I'm watching the movie checking on whoever I'm watching with to make sure that they're still watching the movie. Uh, My wife does not like this about me, if you can imagine. I'll say, did you see that? 
Do you still know what's going on? Did you catch that? This is subtle. I'll say to her, this is one of those movies that you really need to pay attention to, but I say that every single time we watch any movie at all. She's like, I know, Philip, I know how to watch TV. You don't have to teach me how to watch TV. I learned that a long time ago. So my roommate would be like, what's going on? What, what is this? And I just want to rip my hair out because I want to be like, what are you talking about? You, this was your idea. Do I work for you? Like, I don't think I'm getting paid to watch movies and then report them to you back. This isn't working for me. Those kinds of answers that I had to give to my roommate in the middle of him supposed to be paying attention, this is what God is doing in the first three verses of Exodus 11. God is taking a second, breaking us away from the action of what's going on in the throne room of Pharaoh, and he's reminding us of a couple of things that are happening outside of that kind of micro-narrative. For you and I, the most exciting part of this story is probably watching Pharaoh and Moses continue to confront each other. We're fascinated by the pride and the ego, the narcissism of Pharaoh. Some of us see ourselves in that, we see our parents in that, we see our spouses in that, or our grown children in that, and we're fascinated by watching the Bible and God interact with that personality, trying to understand how is he both gracious and harsh, how does he both judge and call to repentance. But for a second, God just wants us to look up from that, and he's going to pause the movie, and he's going to say, okay, here's what's going on so that you guys are aware. These are the things that it would be very easy for you to miss that I need you to catch. First, there is one plague left. We are getting to the end of this film, the end of this movie. There's one more, so don't miss that. Something's going to happen in this last plague that's going to make it sufficient such that we don't need any more after this. It's going to do all the rest of the work that remains to be done. Second thing you need to notice, okay? The people of Israel are going to ask their neighbors for money. That's going to matter later in the story. Four or five chapters later, once they cross the Red Sea, that's where they get all the gold that they turn into the cow that they want to bow down and worship. If you ever, ever read that story and thought, I thought these people came out of slavery. Where'd they get all this money? Well, they got it from their neighbors because God gave them favor because God's plan for the gold was to build a place for him to be worshipped. But instead, they melt it all down when Moses walks away for five minutes. We'll get there in a few weeks. And then finally, you need to understand that Moses has a new level of authority. For the entirety of his ministry in Egypt, both when he lived there as a young man and since he's come back from the desert, people have mostly not taken him seriously. There's one moment where he and Aaron speak to the elders of uh, Israel, they make it clear to them before they do any of these signs, before any plague comes, God's going to set you free. And the people get really pumped up about that. They're excited. And then as soon as Moses and Aaron go to speak to Pharaoh, Pharaoh shuts them down and makes the slaves' lives even harder than they were before. So that's been Moses' reputation. Anywhere he goes in Israel, which is sort of a subset of Egypt at this point, the people are not super happy to see him. Even some of the plagues, the first handful of plagues, actually fall on both Egypt and the people of Israel. So if Moses is the guy who's calling the plagues down, you're not super happy to see him walk into town. This is a moment where having confronted Pharaoh face to face from this point forward, Moses will get very little resistance from the Israelite people until they get out in the wilderness and then they'll start to whine, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Moses is still in the process, to be crystal clear with you. He's still walking out of the palace. This is the same face-to-face -face interaction that we just finished reading in chapter 10. If you read these stories, you go chapter 10, then you read the first three verses of 11, then you get to verse 4 of 11. It's easy to get confused and think that Moses came back to talk to Pharaoh a second time. He didn't. So when Moses says to Pharaoh, you'll never see my face again, he's not lying. He, he turns to leave the palace and then boom, verse 4, God unpauses the movie and directly inspires Moses. He turns to Pharaoh and he says this, thus says the Lord. So now God is speaking through Moses directly. About midnight, I, God personally, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt, which includes both Egypt as a nation and Goshen, where the Israelites live, the whole thing. He says the firstborn of all of these people will die. And then he's very specific with Pharaoh. 
From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, so I'm talking to you, Pharaoh, Moses is saying, all the way to the firstborn of the slave girl who sits behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn even of the cattle. We understand that cattle have economic significance, they're a food source, and they represent a high religious significance in that culture. So we understand why God would go after the cows. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry, everybody's going to weep, throughout all the land of Egypt. Now catch this language again. This is God throwing the Pharaoh's words back in his face. Such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction. That's important, that God is separating his people from the world, from the nations, from Egypt. This is God, if we think of Egypt as sort of the surrogate mother of Israel, God brings Israel into Egypt. They're very small, 70 people. By the time they leave in a couple of chapters, they are roughly a million and a half strong. So they've grown in the womb of Egypt, in this very fertile land. The time came for God to ask for his child back from its surrogate mother. She's refused to let the child go. And so now God is saying, I'm going to clip the umbilical cord and separate my people out from their surrogate mother. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to do it with force. He goes on to explain. He says in verse 8, all of these, your servants, shall come down to me, which is interesting. That implies that they're going to leave the palace and come to where Moses is, and they will bow down to me. Now, this is literal blasphemy in, in Pharaoh's eyes. This is like uh, political unrest meets religious unrest meets just sort of a cultural slap in the face for him to tell the Pharaoh, the, excuse me, the Pharaoh, all your servants will worship me. And they'll say, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that, I will go out. And then he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. It's the same thing God's been telling Pharaoh the whole time. Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron excuse me, did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God is not happy. Can you feel that? This is serious. This is the very first time that Moses has been standing in front of Pharaoh and the Spirit of God inspires him instantly. I mean, he just turns and begins to prophesy. There's no preparation stage. There's no Yahweh walking Moses through the scriptures to make sure that everything he says is grounded. He just takes over Moses as his mouthpiece and speaks directly to Pharaoh. It has not happened like this so far. And there's heat behind Moses' words. God uses three motifs here that he's already established in the first nine plagues that he's put against Pharaoh. First, he goes after Pharaoh directly. God is very personal. He uses the first person pronoun, I. He says, I am coming personally. I have sent my plagues. They've been like mail that I've sent to you that's very bad to open and has bad news for you. I'm coming myself this time. That changes things. That's totally different for the presence of God to come and dwell over a nation. Sometimes we think of that as very positive. Some of us have even prayed for that in our own country. In this instance, it does not go well. It represents the amplification of the darkness of those people in such a way that some of them will not survive this experience, this exposure to the holiness of God. Two, he uses Pharaoh's own language against him. I pointed it out to you as we read. He says, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. I'm going to hurt you like you've never been hurt. I'm going to hurt you in a way you'll never forget. That's what God is telling the Pharaoh is going to happen if you don't let my people go. And then Yahweh further highlight, highlights the partiality of his judgment, that he has separated his people. He has chosen them by no merit of their own. This is where grace begins to come into play because the people of Israel at this point look just like the Egyptians. They grew up worshiping Egyptian gods. They follow the Egyptian calendar. They hold to Egyptian cultural rites. 
they're not interpreting these plagues of God as this really cool Judeo judgment that they have all these categories preset for. They're exploring and experiencing these things for the first time, just like Egypt is. And God is doing that to communicate to them, you are different, you are separate, I will preserve you, I will protect you, even from my own wrath. So let's continue reading, because the rising action is almost over. It's been a year of unrest for these people. Not like you and I have experienced anything like that lately, right? A year of unrest, turmoil, and now God's going to bring it to an end. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 12. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. Don't miss that. This is the first month ever is what God is saying. Just the plainest way to interpret that. Everything before this, we can throw it away. We don't need it anymore. Time for you, the measurement of time, the tracking of time starts today. We're going to talk about why he does that. Tell all the congregation of Israel, verse 3, that on the 10th day of this month, so 10 days from today, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then that person and his nearest neighbor shall take a lamb according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. It has to be a male, and it has to be one year old. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So you're going to get the lamb in 10 days, and then you're going to hold on to it for four days. I think God is doing this because he understands that for a million and a half people to do anything at once, there's got to be a little bit of wiggle room here. So there's even mercy in the way that he's prescribing this to his people. He says, once you have the lamb, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, which is a word we use about churches, so God is speaking to his people as if they are primarily a body that is meant to worship him, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. When the top of the sun clears the horizon, that's your signal. That's the starting gun. Everybody better be outside. You better have your knife ready, have the fire stoked. In just a few minutes, God's going to explain to Moses even further. You need to have your belt on. Wear your sandals to this meal. This meal is supposed to signify you are getting out quickly. But I want to point a couple things out to you before we move that far ahead. Now, when you read these verses, I try to emphasize them for you so you can tell that there's some meaning and some value to them. But if you're like me at face value, this is probably the point in my read the Bible in a year that I begin to get bogged down a little bit. I might even skip all the way to chapter 13 just to get back to the action. Because I haven't been paying that close of attention. I don't care that much about the history. I'm not really aware of Jewish culture. When I read this at face value, the first thing that comes to my mind, just thinking about the last 72 hours of my life, is I go, well, I know lamb is on sale at Costco. I remember that. I was there a couple days ago. That's it. That's my one connection. If I'm just kind of reading through at my dining room table on a Sunday morning before I come to church, I might hit that point and go, that's interesting. I could have eaten lamb too, but I didn't. And then I just kind of go on with my life. There's no real significance for me. What I want to help you understand is, This is huge. This moment is, I can't exaggerate this, it is culture shattering for the people of Israel. It transforms the dynamic of their relationship with God permanently. God's going to explain that in just a minute, but I want to draw out for you the meaning, okay? Prior to this, prior to Exodus 11, God has been willing to receive animal sacrifice, We know this. We know that all the way back with Abraham. Abraham has his son Isaac. It's highly improbable. We would even say impossible biologically. God gives the son. One of the first things that Abraham has to do once his boy grows up is take him up a mountain and perform a ritual sacrifice. But instead of having a ram or a sheep, he lays the boy on the altar. Well, it's implied in there that there was an understanding between Abraham and his son Isaac that the normal thing you would do is have a lamb or a sheep. 
And then at the end of that story, God provides a ram. He catches a ram in a thicket for them, so they're able to sacrifice that instead. So God already has given his people a category of making and receiving animal sacrifices. It happens again in Isaac's life. It happens again in Jacob's life later in the book of Genesis. But this is the very first time that God has codified this process. The very first time that he's given us rules or regulations, specific expectations. And more important than anything else, this is the very first time that every household is responsible for their own sacrifice. Prior to this, especially in the life of the patriarchs, the family of God was not very big. It was between 55 and 75 people at any given time. And so probably the oldest man, either Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, given the generation that you're looking at, He would make a sacrifice and it would cover over his household, his tribe, and that was sufficient because that was all the people of God there were in the world. But the work that God has done in the 400 years since Joseph came to Egypt is to grow his people exponentially. And now they need a way to interact with God corporately. They need rules for how to do this in a way that pleases God. The right that God gives his people in the blood sacrifice is two things. And these will be the things that we're going to focus on for the rest of this morning because the the remainder of God's explanation of this rite and ritual further reinforces the significance of these things. To make a blood sacrifice simultaneous with the rest of the nation but still specific to your own household is both unifying and consecrating. Now, consecrating is an old word. It's the word the King James Version is going to use in the place of holy or holiness It essentially means to be set apart. So God is asking his people to participate in two things that are important to him here. He wants them to willingly be obedient, to willingly participate in unifying themselves, doing this all together. Everybody in the nation kills the lamb at the same time. They cook it at the same time. They eat it at the same time. But also to set themselves apart. They do this so that they can be different from the rest of Egypt, so that they can show that they have faith If I can define a couple of these things for you first, we're going to look at unity and holiness the rest of this morning. I want to start with unity. I'll define it this way for you. Unity, from my perspective, is a holistic, operative mindset. And that's kind of a technical way to say it, but it affects every part of you, and it actually affects what you do. It's not just a cool Christian idea that you can put in your brain bookshelf where you go, yes, I consent to that, and then you never do anything about it. It's operative. It impacts the way that you move and interact with other people. And here's what it causes you to do. It causes us people who want to unify, to act as one organism. It doesn't mean we look all the same. It doesn't mean we always think the same way. It means that we work kind of like an amoeba. We may expand and contract as we move, but we're trying to stay together as we, as we track that movement. Whether it be understanding theology, representing doctrine, communicating the life and death of Jesus to our community, being in community groups together, eating together, um, the way that we practice our gifts, any of those things, we want to be oriented around trying to function as one organism, being unwilling to separate Unity is a state of humility, gentleness, and patience. So if you remember, we worked through the book of Ephesians in 2020, and when we got to chapter 4, which is the beginning of the second movement of the book, where Paul shifts gears and goes into some specific ideas about practice, Paul said this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He said, I therefore, who am a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he gives you three ingredients of what that looks like. He says, with all humility, with gentleness, and with patience. He explains what patience is, bearing with one another in love, so that you may be eager to maintain the unity. If you want to be excited about unity, you need humility, gentleness, and patience. And the Spirit is what binds us together, and the product of that is peace. Now, when we worked through the book of Ephesians, we took a, a, a week to talk about these verses specifically, and we defined humility, gentleness, and patience. So I want to quickly do that for you. Humility, from my perspective, in action, is the restraint of entitlement. 
You've heard people say you need to think less about yourself and think more about other people, or you need to not consider yourself at all. That's a little extreme. That's not verbatim how the Bible communicates. What the Bible seems to communicate is, I have a natural sense about myself, call it a sixth sense, that I deserve more than you. And I'm smiling because that's stupid, but it's what we all think is true about ourselves, if we're really honest. We walk around kind of waiting for other people to bow down, when people hold the door for us or pull out our chair at dinner. We might say thank you, but we're really thinking good for you. You know your place. That's smart. So I have to restrain that. I have to pull the reins back on my natural inclination so that I can prioritize your needs. Because my sense of entitlement not only prioritizes my own needs, it prioritizes my wants as well. Gentleness is just the choice to be kind instead of rough. You know what it's like to treat somebody rough, to just kind of interact with them in a way that's uncaring, uncareful, unfeeling, uncompassionate. Gentleness is the opposite of those things. And then patience is to be long-tempered. You all probably know somebody who is short-tempered. Patience is the opposite of that. And it's a good evaluative question to ask yourself like once a year, am I a person who is hard to make angry? I don't really know anybody like that, to be honest with you. I'm looking at all of you and I'm going, no, I think I could probably make all you guys pretty angry in about 30 seconds. Imagine being a person who can't be riled up who really can't be stirred up at all. I mean, I don't even know if you live a life of practices and rhythms like I do. In my world, I'm exposed to so many harsh and strong opinions that are so combatively against somebody else. I'm not being discipled this way. Well, the Apostle Paul seems to think that if unity is going to be a priority for us, we've got to just stick around and stay calm. That's patience. Now, some of you are going to laugh at me, but if you can think back to my roommate, who would never pay attention to movies— my response to him, my gut response, was not these three things. I did not want to be humble at all. I wanted to kick him out and just watch the movie on my own. I didn't want to be patient. I was sick of it. He did it two times, and I thought, this is it. Every single time we watch a movie, this is going to happen to me now. I mean, I just began to judge him in my heart. And I certainly didn't want to be gentle. I wanted to just ignore him or be mean or kind of rub his face in it and make him pick up his own slack. So just think of that interaction for a second. Put yourself in a position where you can maybe imagine a person that you're around a lot. Don't look at anybody in the room. But just imagine you're with a person who kind of grinds your gears. Here is the way that these things actually act themselves out in our lives. First, humility. Humility says, I will not shush you. I don't need you to be quiet. I don't need to belittle you. I don't need to dismiss you. I'm not trying to get rid of you. You can be here. I'm not better than you. I'm not smarter than you. I don't know more than you do. I'm not the expert in the room. It's saying that you are worth acknowledging and listening to, and you are not a person to be dismissed or ignored. Now, gentleness. Gentleness says, I won't crush you. Okay, I'm going to be careful with the way that I interact with you. I will, I will handle you with care. I'll try to deliver truth to you as softly as I can without compromising that truth. A soft landing. That's what a gentle touch feels like. And then patience says, I won't rush you. Take your time. Go as slow as you need to. Take as long as you need. You may move more slowly than me in the interest of unity. I will allow that without putting unnecessary pressure on you to move along or get better or progress at some rate. I will work to stay in step with you instead of needing us to be out front and therefore dragging you behind me. That's patience. And that's how we unify. We move more slowly than we would like to so that we leave as few people behind as possible. And we treat each other gently, carefully so as not to cause collateral damage in the name of being right or correct, and we restrain our sense of what we think that we deserve. In Ephesians, what Paul has in view when he describes this kind of unity is a church. This, you and I, together, very diverse, different walks of life, different traditions, backgrounds, political beliefs, opinions, dietary plans, sleep patterns, work ethic, whatever it is that you think might divide you, Paul is saying all of that is secondary. Be gentle with each other, be patient, and demonstrate to one another humility, and you'll be able to do this thing. 
It'll be a miracle in your midst that you'll have that connection to each other. But if we look at Exodus 11, what we are dealing with, this kind of unity, is the very first glimpse. It's just the first moment that that this idea of spiritual unity breaks the surface in Scripture. It's the first time God has given his people, whom he has put together on the earth, a rite, a ritual, something to bind them together to be unified. And Yahweh's method for unifying his people in Exodus 11 is rallying them around a blood sacrifice. That's not all it is. He also resets their concept of time, how they will measure dates and seasons by overriding the Egyptian calendar that the Israelite slaves have inherited up to this point. He says to Moses and Aaron, this is the new beginning of time. Today is the first day of the first month ever, as far as you can tell. In other words, what was happening before today was old. It's something we don't need anymore. We can discard it. We can throw it away. And together, Moses and Aaron, you and your people will now measure time beginning with the day that I laid out my final plan to rescue you. You will do this together. You will not choose some to stay on the Egyptian calendar and some to stay on the new Israelite calendar. You will do it all together because you will be unified. You will take a lamb for each household. If you live alone or if you're empty nesters, you'll share a lamb with your neighbors. But you'll kill it at the same time, unity. You'll eat it together and you'll eat the whole thing, unity. With unity in view, let's go now to the second piece of God's plan for his people and you'll quickly see holiness emerge as a theme, our other idea this morning. We'll start reading in verse 7. God is still speaking. He says, Then they shall take some of the blood from the lamb that they've killed and they will put it on to the two doorposts, which run... Uh, perpendicular to the ground, and the lentil of the house, which is parallel to the ground or potentially arched, in which they eat the food. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw. Do not eat it boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and all of its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you will burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. You shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and you will hold your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. There's God's name for what we're going to call this first rite of passage for his people. God says in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Now he's communicating to Israel what he's already told Pharaoh is going to happen. He says, I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. This is part of why we have gone God by God through these plagues, is to see God's direct and specific judgment against the gods and the idols that represent them. He says, I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. Or in Hebrew, he's using his name. He's saying, this is the way that I am. It's me. I'm Yahweh. This is who your God is is going to be. This is what he's like. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, because God's coming in person, I will pass over you, hence the name Passover, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike at the land of Egypt. So blood. Blood has shown up in this story from the very beginning. Blood along with water will remain a means to Yahweh's end all the way until Jesus arrives. It's the reason the presence of blood in this book is a part of why we named this series Blood and Water. The blood of newborn babies spilled in the streets is the opening scene of this narrative. The blood of slaves beaten out of their bodies by Pharaoh's decree. The blood of an Egyptian spilled by Moses in a short-sighted attempt to be the hero of Israel in his own timing, his own way. The blood then of Moses' son cut by his mother to appease Yahweh's wrath against Moses' rebellion against God. The blood of the plagues, you can think about 
blood flowing in the banks of the Nile, blood weeping from open sores on people's bodies, blood running down from the corpses of livestock and gushing from the baseball-sized holes punched through men and animals alike by the hail that God sent from heaven. And now, instead of blood being spilled by the hand of the divine, blood is to be spilled by people. God is transferring this method to his people. He's including them in his work. It's a response to divine law. Yahweh gives his people their first real choice. This is their moment. This is the first time that they're out of the crib, on their feet, and Yahweh's saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to touch the hot stove or not? You know what I want you to do. Now you have a choice. How will you move forward? What choice will you make? This is their first opportunity to draw near to him in faith or to go the way of the world. And the marker of that faith is the tool that God has used to demonstrate his total control over life up to this point in the story. It's blood. That's how they will show. That's how they will demonstrate their faith. Blood that covers their households, blood that covers their coming and their going all day long around this meal. Blood spilled on their behalf so that justice and mercy can be wed to one another. God does not have to pick one or the other. They can be combined. As Yahweh comes to visit Egypt in person, wielding death like a surgeon's scalpel, carefully cutting out the spiritually dead from among the people of Israel. The blood of lambs slain now brushed onto doorways. This is the finest Old Testament metaphor for salvation that you will find in the Bible. Until Jesus arrives in the opening verses of Matthew, this story is the gospel of God. This is his good news. This is the most significant moment in the life of his people in the Old Testament. More than any other king, more than being enslaved or set free, more than any prophecy, even the prophecies about the Messiah himself, God is giving his people a physical, lived experience that signifies what is happening in their spirit. And they, like you, are people who are deeply out of touch with their spirit. So they need that help. They need that hand up into understanding who they are and what it is that God is doing. Now to pass through the doors of blood price from death into life, this is almost an exact quote from Jesus. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. He said, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and he will find pasture. And pasture for a sheep is serenity for human beings. It's peace. It's a life of stability, a life that slows down, a life that has paced itself, a life that is eternal in nature, everlasting. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came so that they, the sheep, those who hear Jesus' voice and respond to him, will have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, in the reverse of what we see in Exodus 11, lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep give their lives for the people in Exodus 11. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate servant, says, now I'm doing that for you. So for you and I, Jesus is the door through which we pass into real, abundant, eternal life. We pass from death to life. That's the picture of Exodus 11. We are all sheep who've been spared from a living death by Jesus, an eternal death by the sacrificial blood of our Savior, And in that, we are unified. Jesus is the glue that holds us together. And in carrying us over from death into life, in opening himself the door to us, we have also been set apart and made holy or separate. Holiness. I define holiness this way. You can write this down if you'd like to. It's the reorientation of the self around God. That's holiness. It's not a behavior. It's not an attitude. It's holistic. It's every part of you finding itself in orbit around the God of the universe, a thing that is impossible without an invitation from him to you. By God's grace, you have been given that invitation. 
the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the church of Jesus, the people who love Jesus, they are an extension of that opportunity to you. They are God saying to you now today, the blood of Jesus will cover over your household. The blood of Jesus will cover your doorway. You can enter into life through him. For the Israelites of Exodus, they were reoriented around Yahweh as they actively obeyed his commands to mark their homes, to submit their lives to a blood sacrifice. If I was passing through the door of the blood of those lambs, then I myself would be brought out of living death, which in their experience was slavery. It was oppression. It was loyalty to the gods and idols of their contemporaries. And instead, to be brought into a new kind of life with the living God. Now, I want to make this clarifying point for you. Holiness for us is not about moral excellence. It's not. We can't confuse holiness with getting everything right all the time. Moral excellence was the standard of holiness for the religious elite of Jesus' day, and Matthew 23 alone is an indictment of that kind of living. So go home and read that if you disagree with me, and then we'll have coffee and we can talk about it gently and in love, and I'll be humble and patient and all the things I told you you should be with people that get on your nerves. Holiness for us is about being in step with Jesus. Maybe I can say it to you this way. It is less of the carefully choreographed movement of a marching band And it is more of the little boy who's walking next to his dad and occasionally skips so that his feet hit the ground at the same time. One is motivated by precision, efficiency, and impressive display of mastery, of skill. The other just wants to be like his hero. And we who follow Jesus are not concerned with our appearance or how professional our holiness can be. We want to be in step with our hero. We want to be less the highly precise and coordinated marching band that's all about incredible excellence. That will come. We want to be more about following our rabbi as he called his first disciples to follow him. So finally, to land the plane today, Yahweh explains the future significance of this rite of passage for Israel. This will bring us through verse 20 of chapter 12. We'll start in verse 14. God says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you'll keep it. It will be a feast to Yahweh. You'll eat and drink and gather together as an act of worship to your God. You'll do it throughout your generations. It will be a statute for you forever, and you shall keep it as a feast And God's going to repeat himself in here. He's going to fully explain this two times, which I think demonstrates his understanding of our need for repetition to learn anything at all. He says in verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, a week. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. And this is to keep you safe, because if anybody eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That seems really harsh, to eat the wrong bread and be out of the nation forever. Why is that happening that way? Because what God is doing is he is cutting his people off from Egypt. So the spiritual significance of this is what matters. God is less concerned with whether or not a little leaven gets on your tongue. He obviously cares about it enough to tell you to just dump your leaven out and get new leaven the next Saturday or whatever. But he wants you to understand that by being lackadaisical about this, by walking through it haphazardly, by not taking it seriously, you are demonstrating the same attitude that the Egyptians and the Israelites themselves have had up to this point. God is calling for something new, a new kind of holiness. He says in verse 16, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. You'll gather together for what you and I would call church. And on the seventh day you'll also have a holy assembly. No work will be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe this, the feast of unleavened bread. So the feast itself is seven days. The Passover is the meal itself. That may be helpful for you to make that distinction. For on this very day, now catch the tense of this verb. I'm telling you, you've got to read your Bible close. He says, on this very day, I brought you. That's past tense, but it hasn't happened yet. You see that to Yahweh, this is a done deal. It's sealed up. It's done. It's over. There's no discussion. There's no question of whether it might go right or wrong. He's saying, later, once I'm done with the work that I'm doing for you, you'll look back on it and you'll remember how awesome I am. 
that I brought you, your hosts, out of the land of Egypt, and therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Here comes round two of all the same regulations. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. Now, there's a little distinction made here. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. So even if you have a guest in your house, they better follow these rules because this is about me, not you, is what God is saying. You'll eat nothing leavened, and in all of your dwelling places, you will eat unleavened bread. Yahweh's expectation is that his newly unified and set-apart people live in a rhythm that encourages them to constantly, annually, reunify and re-consecrate themselves. If you have ever wondered why True North Church practices annual covenant membership renewal, for me, it's these verses. It's the concept that once a year I should step back and say, am I still really wanting to be a part of this? Does this still matter enough to me to go through the steps that are necessary? This motion of being drawn out of the world and into community with each other is perpetual in the life of Israel. Even though they don't have the Messiah, even modern Jews do a better job of reminding themselves of their collective spiritual history with God than we do. They do it every year and everything stops for them until it's done. Why? Well, the answer to that question is basically based on your experience of human beings. I don't know how many people you know, you're sitting around a few right now, but even if you're the most severe introvert in the world, you probably understand that people are really only good at two things. One, we love to make relational chasms. All we do is push people away, we are so good at it, while at the same time, we do everything in our power to lower and change our standards so that other people will accept us. That's all we do. We de-unify and we drop our standard of holiness. And not just in the world, even Christians do this. Our desires for unity and holiness are in constant tension with each other. To give you an example, in the pursuit of unity, we often surrender our holiness. We want to accept and welcome all people. And so we make concessions that become normative for us until a generation or two later, our new compromises cause us to not look very much like the Jesus that was supposedly our rallying point in the first place. Exhibit A, any of the mainline Protestant denominations who worked so hard in the 1960s. If you've never studied this, you should study the parallels between the sexual revolution and the theological liberalization of the mainline Protestant denominations. That movement toward the theological left came from a heart that genuinely wanted to swing wide the doors of the church, to welcome people in so that more and more people would come to Jesus. But unfortunately, fast forward 30 years, and between 1990 and 2010, Jesus basically had to be abandoned. Almost all of his teaching has to be left on the side of the road in order to take that line of thinking to its natural conclusion. This is unity over holiness, which is not the choice that we're being asked to make. On the other end of the spectrum, in our pursuit of holiness, we begin to add to and fine-tune the rules of life that Jesus taught. We want to always be clarifying and narrowing our understanding of who is a real Christian. You might see the Young Restless Reformed movement within conservative Protestants in the early 2000s as a good example of this. The overnight, almost instant popularity of preachers like John Piper, John MacArthur, Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, with people who were 25 and younger, this can be attributed in large part to young people wanting, rightly so, so badly to be separate from the world. And not just the world, but what they would define as the more worldly branches of the modern church. Eventually, that led us to a place where we began to create tighter and narrower understandings of everything, from male and female roles in the home, all the way to our understanding of what the gospel even is. Our movement into the theologically reformed camp often resulted in a new willingness to attack and to belittle the broader Christian church, which, though it is often in error, 
is not apostate like many of us would like to treat it. That is holiness over unity. So what do we do? Do we pick the lesser of two evils? We've heard a lot of that language since 2016. I don't think we have to make that choice. I don't think they're binary. Do we, do we settle for unity with a low moral and theological standard, or do we take on holiness that attacks and tears down the immature and undeveloped believers in our midst? To use the categories of the New Testament, do we become Hellenists who love Rome and her culture, or do we become Pharisees who love the law so much that we can do God no good? In Jesus, we don't have to make that choice. In Jesus, when we choose him, when we choose his way and his truth and his life, we are also choosing the way and the truth and the life. And along with unity and holiness, when we get Jesus, we get our own modern rhythms of consecration and unity, baptism and communion. We model and experience the death and resurrection of Jesus in us corporately when we gather around the water for baptism. It's not just about the preacher in the water and whoever's getting dunked. We are doing that together. There's a reason that that is public and that it has been ordained. We call it an ordinance or a sacrament. Second, we model and experience the life of welcoming mercy that Jesus lived. He showed us that as he sat and ate with the very worst people. Jesus spent the majority of his time sitting at tables in his ministry, eating with people nobody would even make eye contact with. And we emulate that when we gather at the table for communion. Jesus is not surprised when he looks up from his meal at the table with us and sees a bunch of broken sinners. That's who he's always been eating with. He's never eaten with perfect people. It's never happened. Even those who've self-elevated to the point where they think they've got it all nailed down, Jesus spends way more time tearing their egos down than he ever does attacking the sinful lifestyle of the poor and the wicked and the destitute and the forgotten. To them, he extends an invitation to come to the table to receive mercy and grace and life from him. That's life together. We can be unified. We can be made holy, but we don't have to chase after either of those things to the detriment of the other. When we follow Jesus, when it's all about Jesus, those things come. Those things are fruit born out of our lives uniquely in a way that no theological study or, or abandonment of Orthodox Christianity can ever lead us to. We only gain those things by keeping our eyes on Christ and we live differently. We get it all by meeting him, by following him, by learning his way. Because why? Because he is our lamb. Because his blood was spilled to make a way for us so that we may go in and out and find pasture and find peace. So may we unify under the banner of his life for us. May his blood be the blood above our doorways. And may our holiness simply mean that we are always moving toward Jesus. And as we do that, as we collectively move toward Christ, may we look left and right and find that we are growing closer to each other along the way. I want to pray that for you. Father, thank you for your mercy in our lives and thank you for the opportunity to be together yet to be made different. That feels really oxymoronic to me. I struggle with this sometimes. What are the boundaries? How do I know? Where do I stand my ground? Can a Christian ever attack another person? Can a Christian attack an idea? How do I interact with culture? How do I give an invitation to a bunch of people that I sense are threatening my own way of life? The nuance of navigating these things, God, we admit to you today, we acknowledge and confess that it's only found in the person of Jesus. It is only walking in your footsteps, watching you interact with people, standing your ground at times, giving mercy at times, compassion without compromise. That is the way that we want to live. We want to be in your kingdom, sons and daughters of you bought by your blood and transformed not only on the other side of our death, but on this side of it, God. Before we get to eternity, we want to live this eternal, abundant life now. So would you teach us to do that? Would you teach us, God, to be gentle with each other, to show each other mercy, to walk in humility, to be patient, 
that we might unify. And as we are unified, God, would you remind us that we are also set apart? May that not be a surprise or a challenge to our faith, but something that demonstrates that we belong to you. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.